Um, Won't you remain standing with me um, as we read today's uh, passage? And that is Joel chapter 3, all 21 verses. Uh, You can find that in page 906 in your pew Bible. Again, this uh, Joel chapter 3. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat and will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the, all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. For you've taken my silver and my gold and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You've sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I will serve them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head, and I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. And let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. And Jerusalem shall be holy And strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk. And all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness for the violence done to the people of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood. Blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. Let's pray. Father God, we just, we thank you that you are who you say you are. And that you are sovereign, and you're mighty, and nobody can can stop your plans and your purposes. And no one can steal your glory. 
God, when things are uncertain, thank you that we can trust in you who are certain and are eternal and that you've already got the end game planned out and that we can trust you to make what's wrong right. Father, just speak through Pastor Bruce this morning. Help us to have uh, ears that will hear and minds that will understand, hearts that will love you, and hands that will apply. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are concluding our series that we have been in for the last few weeks in the Old Testament book of Joel. And as we now come to chapter 3 here in the book of Joel, the whole focus of this chapter is now coming to the climactic day of the Lord when Jesus returns as judge and king. Chapter 2, we saw last Sunday, it ended with the promise of salvation for those who, who turn to the Lord. God says in Joel 2.32, and it shall come to pass that, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. In chapter 3 here now begins with a warning of judgment for those who turn away from the Lord. God says in the first two verses, for behold, in those days and at that time, I will gather the nations and I will enter into judgment with them. And so if we stop and ask the question, well, what will this day of judgment be like? What will it be like to be there on this day when God's judgment is poured out on the gathered nations? It almost seems unimaginable, more than what we can even fathom, more than we can comprehend. What will happen when the day of the Lord comes? Our minds even now might be racing to what that might look like. We may even revert back to movies we have seen, images we have seen, and even in real time, and, and even here in this last week when we see the images and video of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and we see war-torn cities and the bombings and people running for their lives, and Perhaps that might be a glimpse of what this day of the Lord might be like. What we do know is what Joel tells us here, the prophet Joel here in his book at chapter 3. And and so the overarching idea here of what he tells us, what he's going to show us is this, is that the day of the Lord will be both a day of destruction and it will be a day of deliverance but it will also be a day of decision, but not by human beings, but by the Lord himself. In this final chapter here, Joel uses words to paint a a very vivid picture for us, a very somber picture of this day of judgment. He, He portrays for us what the day of the Lord will be like so that we can begin to see, we might be able to get a glimpse and imagine for ourselves what this day will be like. In the picture that Joel paints for us, it is worldwide in scope. 
Joel says, all the nations will be gathered together for judgment on this day. And from Joel's particular perspective, God's judgment here in the context of Joel, it is related to the way the surrounding nations have treated God's people through the ages. Now, I realize that when we come to church like we have this morning, when we get out of our cars, we walk through the parking lot, we come through these doors that our minds are often filled with our own personal lives, our own busy schedules of of work and family and everything else. And so sometimes we just need to stop and ask ourselves, man, what really matters? What really matters? And so I want to encourage you, even at this moment in time, for the next few minutes here, to think beyond your job, to think beyond just your immediate family, to, to think about your life, to think about even your eternity, to think about what it might be like for you to stand before a holy God to give an account of your life. What is it that you need to prepare for? And perhaps, could there, could there be something that matters more than anything else that is consuming your life right now. Through the prophet Joel, God says, here's what you need to focus on. There is something way more important than everything else that presses in on your life right now, and that is the coming day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, it may sound rather distant to you. It may even sound remote, and perhaps it may even sound hard to understand. But if you believe what Joel says here in God's Word, it will matter to you more than anything else that has happened in your life this past week. And perhaps something big, maybe even life-changing, has happened to you this past week. But nothing will change your life more than the decision that God announces about you on the day of the Lord. So with that in mind, let us, let us look at it. Let us unfold what, what Joel paints for us about this coming day of the Lord. And the first thing he shows us is that it is a day of decision And what we see here is the final vindication is prepared for God's people. God says that he will act in two ways on this day. One is an act of grace. It is an act of mercy and goodness by God himself on behalf of his people. And the other is an act of judgment. Look again what God says in verse 1. He says, For behold, in those days and at that time, I will restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. That is an act of grace and mercy by God. You say, well, how will God restore their fortunes? God tells us in verse 2. He says, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel. And so there you see the judgment. On this particular day of decision, Israel's situation in the world will be dramatically changed, reversed, if you will, as God will deal justly with the nations of the world for the way they have treated Israel throughout history. This is what is known as the judgment of the nations, which will take place on earth after the return of Christ prior to the millennial 
kingdom, the thousand-year reign. Now, in Joel's day, wars took place in valleys. In our modern day, that's not how wars took place. We are very familiar with how wars take place today. We are seeing images of it this last week. As Russia invades Ukraine, we see how wars take place. There are bombs. They take place from a distance. Tanks roll in. We have seen the Ukrainians even stand in front of tanks and be run over, and civilians pick up arms to fight for their freedom. But in Joel's day, that is not how wars took place. They took place in vast valleys, hand-to-hand combat. And so now Joel is taking that image here, and he is using it to portray the final judgment of these nations that have been gathered. In fact, he even names the valley the Valley of Jehoshaphat. You ask, well, where is that on the map? Well, there isn't a valley on the map known as the Valley of Jehoshaphat. And so the significance, more than likely, is in the name itself rather than on a particular location, since Jehoshaphat actually means God judges. And of course, that is what God is doing on this day. In fact, the valley is called, in verse 14 later on, the Valley of Decision. It's one and the same, Valley of Jehoshaphat, Valley of Decision. And so it's a word play now on the very idea of God acting as a judge on this day. It's as if Joel pictures the Valley of Jehoshaphat as this huge courtroom where God takes up a case against the nations concerning their treatment of his people, and he now enters into judgment with them. At the same time, it is interesting, though, that there was a valley tradition in Israel with regards to battles of judgment. For example, you read in the book of Jeremiah, there is a valley called the Valley of Slaughter. You read in the book of Isaiah, there is a valley known as the Valley of Vision. You come to Zechariah's prophecy, and there, Zechariah's valley is connected with the Lord's judgment against the nations in a great battle. In fact, according to Zechariah 14, when Christ returns, the Mount of Olives will be split, forming this massive valley before Jerusalem. And verse 4 says, On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And and so because of that, there are some Bible scholars that think the location of the Valley of Jehoshaphat is between Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives, which has been called the Kidron Valley. Regardless, the emphasis that Joel's making is not so much on the location as in the name of the valley, what God will do on this day in that valley. And so don't miss Joel's point that God himself is the one who is initiating this day of reckoning for all the nations in the valley of Jehoshaphat. God is the one who is emphatically saying, I will gather and I will bring them down. I mean, both indicate the sovereign action of God. Listen, the nations on this day, as they do now today, they may feel very safe 
within their own borders, protected by their own military. The nations may feel entirely self-sufficient economically, but God says, I will gather the nations. The nations may be immensely powerful. They may be very prosperous with world leaders and world-class cities, but God says, I will bring them down. And as the judge of all the earth, God will do this for one issue. He says, I will enter into judgment on behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel. Listen, as you know, most of you are very well aware that great evils have been committed against God's people throughout their history, beginning in the Old Testament. All of them are known to God. And all of them will be brought to account on this day. God is very much concerned for his own people and his own heritage. They belong to him and nobody else. No other nation has the right to do what they like with God's people. You say, why? Why will God judge the nations? And there's one reason why, and that is because the nations are guilty. In fact, God brings to light three charges against the nations here in verses 2 and 3. Look what he says. He says, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. And so three charges that God now brings before the nations in this valley of Jehoshaphat, the valley of decision, in this courtroom, he lays out the charges before them. And the very first charge he brings is that the nations have mistreated God's people. The nations have scattered God's people among the nations. And this first charge, it's interesting, it is rooted in all that God has done to gather his people together in one nation in the promised land, what is known as Canaan. God chose them. You may remember this. This is the story of the Old Testament. God chose them as his own, beginning with Abraham in Genesis 11 and 12. He then rescued them out of bondage and slavery in Egypt, using Moses to lead them to the promised land. He even brought them back to the promised land after exiling them because of their continued sin themselves in rebellion against God. And so here's the idea. God has always, always, always been committed to gathering his people together. Why? So that God might bless the world through his people, which is we know what God has done because Jesus Christ has come out of this to be a blessing to the world, to provide a salvation a way of escape from this day of judgment and wrath. But the nations here have humiliated, they have mistreated God's people by scattering them, and now a day of reckoning was coming. That's the first charge. The second charge God brings is that the nations have divided up God's land. Now here's what you need to understand. The land is important. Land was super important for God's people and for God himself. In fact, from the very beginning in the promised land, the Lord made it clear that, the whole, that all the land belonged to God. It was his, as indeed all the earth is God's. 
And so, in entirely, it is within God's discretion to give to the people he chose, and he chose to give the land to the people of Israel. This was the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 13. Now, one nation in particular is is brought up here, and that is the nation of Edom. And they were guilty of this charge of dividing up God's land when only God was entitled to divide up the land like he did when he gave the promised land. He divided it up and he gave this portion and this portion and this portion to each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Only God was allowed to do that. In fact, even the Israelites themselves, God's people, they were given very strict instructions not to treat the land like any normal real estate that could be bought and sold and exchanged and bartered with. That's how important the land was. The third charge that God brings before the nations is they've exploited God's vulnerability. This third charge, they have cast lots for my people, accuses the nations of treating God's people like prized slaves in our lottery system. It was a complete disregard for the sanctity of human life. And perhaps the worst of this crime is the exploitation of the children when the nations, it says, traded a boy for a prostitute and sold a girl for wine. Now today we call this human trafficking. These nations sacrificed the most vulnerable in society in order to satisfy their own sinful, depraved craving. Now, all of this, I mean, it just makes you wonder, and you can't help but wonder, even this last week, if you see the news and images, you can't help but wonder if there will ever be justice in this world. Causes you to ask, where is the justice in this world? And the answer is, yes, a day is coming when there will be justice. God himself will bring justice. Acts 17.31 tells us that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. And on that day, God will gather all the nations and he will enter into judgment with them for their evil. In fact, it's interesting. The Bible tells us that God has both books and a bottle. Books and a bottle. According to Revelation 20, verse 12, God records all human evil in the books. And according to Psalm 56, 8, God gathers the tears of his suffering people in a bottle. And so every act of human cruelty, every act of violence is known to God. He knows the suffering caused by human evil, and God will bring all evil into judgment. One author put it this way, God's memory and attention to detail does not chop and change like our contemporary media. According to the latest disaster or genocide, he has both books and a bottle, which together are more accurate and permanent than the world's most up-to-date computer with the latest software. They have limitless capacity. They contain everything that anyone has ever thought, said, or done. And God sees it all, and he will bring it all to judgment. 
God sees all the great evils of humanity, and he never forgets one. And on the day of the Lord, listen, the books will be opened and every sin will be brought to account. Divine judgment and divine retribution will come. And at times, divine judgment and retribution comes even in the present. Like when God says to the Phoenicians, In Joel 3, verse 4, I will return your payment on your own heads, and I will do so swiftly and speedily. And so let me just stop here and say that it is dangerous morally and even spiritually to develop an understanding of divine judgment, that is God's judgment, which puts it all off until this final day of judgment. Listen, it is far more healthy and biblical to live each of our days here on this earth in light of this coming day, in light of eternity. In other words, to hold ourselves accountable before God today, for today, when we can still seek his mercy and grace in Jesus Christ before it's too late. This is what Joel is now reminding us of with these two examples that he gives to us of God's divine retribution. And what we see in that, notice this, is that God will justly pay back the Phoenicians' arrogance and the Philistines' violence against his people, and he will do so swiftly and speedily. Now, just to give you context here, a little bit of history, the Phoenicians' arrogance and the The Philistines' violence was very well known, not just in Israel, but throughout the world in Joel's day and prior. Tyre and Sidon were two Phoenician port cities along the Mediterranean coast. And and so due to the worldwide commerce and their immense wealth, they became very, very proud and arrogant people. In fact, the prince of Tyre even declared himself a god in Ezekiel 28.2. Philistia was actually the name of a territory that included five Philistine cities. The Philistines themselves as a people group, they were extremely powerful. They were extremely violent as well. And they were the traditional enemy of the people of God, Israel, for several hundred years. Now, most likely, it's that the Phoenicians and the Philistines are highlighted here because they serve as representatives of all the enemy nations. And yet, in context, God singles them out for his immediate judgment. Notice how sarcastically God even addresses them in verse 4. He says, What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, in all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. In other words, imagine the conversation going like this. The Phoenicians and Philistines, they talk big, but God says to them, What are you to me? I'm about to wipe you off the face of the earth, off the map. And this phrase that is used is not by accident, the phrase paying back. It's the same idea when God promised to pay back the locust years. That repayment to God's people was for restoration. But here now in Joel 3, the repayment or paying back is retribution for their arrogance and violence against God's people. 
And then the Lord proceeds to cite the evidence to support his divine retribution against them in verses 5 and 6. He says, for you have taken my silver and my gold. You have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own borders. And so God's retribution now, listen to me, it is entirely appropriate when God now says in verses 7 and 8, Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabians, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. The Lord has spoken. And when the Lord speaks, as we have already seen through this book, you can count on it. What God says he will do, he will do. For the Lord has spoken. And so the truth here, it is simple, it is profound, And it is powerful. When God decides to, quote, stir up, anything can happen. As David Pryor writes, God is in charge of events in every nation, and his hand is on any nation's leaders at any time, molding their decisions and arousing them to the activity which will serve his purposes. Historically, we we know that Alexander the Great was God's chosen instrument of retribution when in 332 B.C. he besieged and captured the city of Tyre, selling into slavery some 30,000 people. Now, this idea of divine retribution, God's retribution, may seem kind of shocking to us. In fact, perhaps it may even seem offensive to some of you. However, here's what we need to understand. This side of God's dealings with evil here is consistent with his character as a holy God. King Solomon himself says in Ecclesiastes 12, 14, For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Jesus himself also speaks in similar terms in Matthew 16, 27, where he says, For the Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay everyone for what has been done. Paul reminds us in Romans 12, 19, he says, For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And so it is is very important for us to remember something here, that divine retribution by God is also for the purpose of vindicating the righteous. Even now, as we think about justice or injustice in our own day and age, Is it not a comfort to know when justice has been served? With all its human flaws. And is it not a comfort to know that this world is ultimately subject to God's holy, righteous justice? Listen, the evils that God will bring to judgment are many. Joel tells us here in verse 13, for their evil is great. And we understand this. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, when they decided they were going to become their own God and live their own lives and 
apart from God. I don't have to do what he says. I can do what I want. We know, we understand how evil is etched now into human history and human character to such a degree that without judgment, there can never be a restoration for God's people. And so make no mistake about it, understand a principle here. The restoration of God's people in verse 1 happens how? Through the gathering of the nations for judgment in verse 2 in the rest of the chapter. So the day of the Lord, it is a day of decision that God makes. When the final vindication is prepared for God's people. And this brings us then to the day of destruction, where we see final judgment is proclaimed on God's enemies. Joel now returns to the valley of Jehoshaphat, where God issues a challenge to the nations, and he he summons them for a great battle that is called the Battle of Armageddon in Revelation 16. And through a series of images in verses 9 through 16 here, we learn what this battle, this great battle, will be like. And first and foremost, it will be a day of destruction for God's enemies. Through the prophet Joel, God says in verse 9, he says, proclaim this among the nations. And so what we see happening here is that God has an announcement to the world. And that announcement is twofold. We might summarize it like this. The first part of the announcement is nations prepare for war in the valley of Jehoshaphat. Joel tells the nations in verse 9, consecrate for war or prepare for war. This is the same language that Joel has already used earlier in chapter 2 to to actually call the people of God to consecrate themselves for repentance before the Lord. But here, now Joel is calling the nations to consecrate themselves for war with God. Why? Because this is a holy war. This war is by God and for God and for His purposes. It is set apart by God and for God. And the need for both warriors and weapons is clear in verses 9 through 11. Look what it says. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I'm a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Now, you need to understand the nations have no choice in this matter. When God wants to gather, he gathers. The nations have no choice. They must gather for war. And notice the irony with all this. He says, the the, the beating your plowshares and the swords and the pruning hooks and the spears. It's just another way of saying, when you come, when you gather here, you better bring all you got. And then the irony continues in verse 12. It says, let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Now, if you're going to battle, that's an odd way to fight. That's a very strange way to fight a battle. 
God doesn't even stand up for this battle. What we see here is he is sitting for this battle. And this is Joel's way of saying to the nations, reminding us here every now, that the nations have absolutely no chance against the Lord. They, they can't challenge his authority. They can't do anything against his power as he now sits to judge them. I, I'm, I'm reminded what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2.8. Paul says that the, that the Lord will actually overcome his enemies or destroy his enemies with the, the breath of his mouth. Paul says then, too, that he will bring them to nothing at the appearance of his coming. That's what's going to take place on this day. And the extent of God's judgment on this day, let me tell you, it is crushing. Look what Joel says in verse 13. He says, put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. After grapes are harvested, they are thrown into a wine press where they are, are treaded upon. Joel's taken up the same analogy here where the crushing weight of God's holy wrath pressed upon his feeble enemies. And what's interesting, according to Revelation 14, it seems that God will work through his angels to accomplish this feat we're talking about here. The Apostle John writes in Revelation 14, verses 19 and 20, listen, so the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 16 stadia, which is about 184 miles. And please, again, remember, God's actions here are not arbitrary. They're not on a whim. They are not capricious. Listen, God's judgment, it it is deserved. Remember, he says, for their evil is great. And so God's first announcement to the angels is, or to the nations is prepare for war. Notice God's second announcement. Nations prepare for defeat in the valley of decision. Look what Joel sees in verse 14. He says, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. So Joel is painting a picture again for us. He wants us to picture this vast crowd of people, this vast crowd of humanity in this valley. In fact, it is so big, so vast, it's beyond any number that you could possibly count. I'm sure most of you, you remember seeing the pictures of the huge crowd. In fact, some of you were probably there, the huge crowd of people that gathered down at Union Station for both when the Royals won the World Series, but here more recently when the Chiefs won the the Super Bowl. And all those people gathered to celebrate the NFL championship. And it was a vast crowd. In fact, they estimated that it was around 800,000 people that gathered down for that victory parade to celebrate in Union Station, more than what could possibly be counted. But the multitudes here on this day, the multitudes of people gathered here in the Valley of Decision will dwarf in comparison. And this is no calm scene either. 
Rather, it is a scene of people in panic, as this word multitudes implies. And according to verse 15, the sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. And then notice what happens next in verse 16. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake. Now remember when Pastor Chris read from Psalm 2 this morning, our call to worship in Psalm 2, the nations have roared in rebellion against God. But now, now the Lord roars like a lion from Zion, and he thunders his judgment against the nations from Jerusalem. Now again, please make note of this. Understand the valley of decision. It is not what the nations decide about God. It's what God decides about the nations. Listen, these nations of people groups, they have already made their decision that matters most in life. And the decision they have made is to reject God and to live their life without God. And so now when the day of the Lord comes, it will be too late for anyone to make any decisions about God. All will be over and his judgment will be final. And again, we are now reminded of the question that was posed earlier in chapter 2, verse 11. For the day the Lord is terrible and difficult, dreadful. Who can endure it? And the answer is nobody can on their own apart from the Lord. Is there any hope then? Is there any hope for, of escape? And again, we've already seen, yes. Remember what God promised in verse 32, right before this chapter, the last verse before this chapter. It says, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be what? Saved. And so now, here's what we're seeing. We are seeing God delivering on this promise in the rest of verse 16, where it says, but the Lord is a refuge to his people a stronghold to the people of Israel. And so picture this, imagine this. On the day of the Lord, there is only one place to find deliverance from his retribution, from his divine wrath, and that is in the Lord. The same Lord who now roars from Zion is a refuge to this people, those who call on his name in saving faith. And that brings us now to the day of deliverance where we see this final restoration is promised for God's people. And so while God's enemies are gathered for judgment, God's people are now promised this glorious, wonderful future. Look what God says in verses 17 through 21. It says, so you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, 
And Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness, for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But, but, but Judah shall be inhabited forever. In Jerusalem to all generations, I will avenge their blood, and blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. This is the final restoration of God's people, and it is glorious. It is glorious, but don't miss the most glorious aspect of this restoration. It's found at the beginning, and then you see it again at the end when God says, the Lord dwells in Zion. Listen, folks, the greatest blessing is God's presence dwelling with God's people in God's land under God's rule. That's where history is moving to for the people of God. Right here. And if you remember what we have seen in the book of Joel, this reality had become a very matter of serious doubt during the locust disaster for God's people. Where is God? He's nowhere to be found. In fact, he's outside the city of Zion. He is using the Assyrian army to to bring us back to himself, to bring his own judgment against his own people. And they were in doubt about it, but God was gracious and merciful and told them, if you turn to me, I I will forgive you. And now we see this, that God assures his people that on this day, he says, listen, I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion. And when God's people... Even today, when we live in the assurance of God's presence, then they know that he is truly the Lord and that he is truly is their God. This is the purpose of God's redemptive plan of salvation. And that is for God's people to enjoy his presence for all eternity. Are you looking forward to this day? In fact, then there are three blessings that flow out of God's presence, dwelling with God's people. Let me go through them quickly. It says, first, God's people will be eternally holy. Listen, holiness is the result of God's presence. And so God, his presence itself, it makes Jerusalem the holy city because he dwells there with his people who are now holy. And so what we see here is that in the millennial kingdom, a holy city and a holy people come from the presence of a holy God. And then number two, God's people will be eternally satisfied. Why? Because the land of Israel will be restored with this super abundance of wine, milk, and water. The promised land, if you remember, had been originally a land flowing with milk and honey. Remember that? They go spy out the land in Joshua, and they come back with a report, and this is what they reported. But nothing can begin to compare with the abundance of God's, of what God's people will enjoy in the millennial kingdom. And the source of this superabundance is made plain when it says, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord in the water, the valley of Shittim. And then we see number three, the third blessing, God's people will be eternally established. Unlike Egypt, unlike Edom, 
who will become a desolate wilderness for the violence that they committed against God's people. God says that now Judah will be inhabited forever in Jerusalem to all generations. Why? Because the Lord now dwells there in Zion with his people. Oh, what a glorious future awaiting God's people. And so no wonder it says in Psalm 135, 21, Blessed be the Lord from Zion, He who resides in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. What a day that will be when the Lord roars from Zion. So how? How should this impact your life right now? What difference should this make to you as you go to school tomorrow? What difference does this make as you go to work? as you live your life, as you interact with your family members, what impact, what difference should this make? Listen, the book of Joel, it calls for us to stop in our tracks, to stop moving in the hustle and bustle of life. It calls us to stop and to think seriously about the coming day of the Lord. Joel is reminding us that judgment is coming. And it is more severe than we can ever imagine. And it ought to shake our souls to the core, especially when we realize how guilty we are in our sins. Because we are the nations that God gathers. Listen to me. The day of the Lord is coming. And there's only one decision, one decision that really matters before it's too late. And that is the decision for each of us here to turn to the Lord. Listen, he is the judge you should fear, and he is also the refuge you should seek. Yes, Joel tells us here that God will roar in his judgment. But make no mistake either, God is a refuge for those who turn to him in saving faith. And so as grave and somber as God's judgments are, listen to me, greater still is his good pleasure to save people from his sins. That is why he sent Jesus Christ. So the question then becomes, well, how? If this is so real, this is so important, this judgment of God, this divine retribution for all the evils committed, and we are part of those nations, then how can God, who is the judge, be a refuge from his own judgment? That is a great question. And the answer is found in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Folks, listen to me. We we are powerless to save ourselves. But Jesus Christ is a refuge for all who call upon his name in repentance of sin and dependence on him for salvation. And Paul explains it this way in Romans 3, 23 and 25. He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means every one of us here this morning. But then he says, we we are justified. That is, we are declared righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, 
whom God put forward as a propitiation for his blood to be received by faith. In other words, in dying the death that you and I should have died, Christ took our sins upon himself and he bore the wrath of God, the terrible wrath that we just saw here in Joel 3. In other words, Jesus took that wrath upon himself so that he now could be your refuge when he comes again as the judge and gathers the nations in judgment in the valley of decision. And so here's the deal. And this is the only deal that matters. On that day, either God's judgment is poured out for you on Jesus Christ, or it will be poured out on you in the valley of decision. And for those who have rejected Jesus Christ as their Savior and King, Joel warns you that God's judgment will be poured out on you on this day. But for those who have opened up their heart and have received Jesus Christ in saving faith, let me tell you the glorious, wonderful, good news of the gospel is that the Lord's judgment is over for you. He has already poured out his wrath on Jesus Christ in your place. Amen. Hallelujah, right? As one author writes, a summons to judgment should terrify the unbeliever. They will be brought to account for all the wrong they have done. But for the believer in Jesus Christ, the valley of God's judicial decision has been transformed into a door of hope. The one who trusts the Lord for their salvation already stands acquitted of his crimes and awaits expectantly their entrance into glory. Is that you? If you haven't already, turn to the Lord today. Listen, Jesus Christ, he holds the gift of salvation in his hand and he is ready to be your refuge on the day of the Lord. He is ready even now to say to you today, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because he is your refuge. He is your Savior and he is your King and Lord. And oh, what a day are we looking forward to. The question becomes, you have an opportunity before it's too late to decide to make a decision for Christ. Before it's too late and God will make a decision on you. And on that day, it becomes very simple. Either God's judgment is poured out for you on Jesus Christ, or it will be poured out on you on the day of the Lord. But before that day comes, Paul says that this is the day of salvation. The time is now to respond if you haven't already. To open up your heart, to come to him in repentance of your sin, in dependence on him for your salvation. With your heads bowed. And as we give opportunity for you to do that in the quietness of your heart, right where you're seated, If you haven't, I beg, I plead for you to turn to the Lord in prayer. Express your heart's desire as the Holy Spirit works on you and convicts you of your sin. 
And for those of you that are already believers in Jesus Christ, let this message motivate you to share the hope and the glorious good news of the gospel with those who are still in the way of God's wrath. And so will you take a moment to respond? Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the prophet Joel. Lord, we recognize these have not been easy messages, easy to preach, easy to hear, and yet they're your truth. And in these messages, in this book in particular, it's, it's full of your judgment, but at the same time, it is full of your grace and mercy as well. And Lord, that is still offered to us in your son, Jesus Christ. And so let us turn to him. May you be our refuge. May you be our savior and king. And so Lord, I pray that each one would evaluate their lives in light of this coming day of the Lord. And they would respond appropriately as you call out to them. In your name we pray, amen. Listen, let me just encourage you. If God is pricking in your heart, maybe even a moment ago you prayed in the quietness of your heart to make a decision for Christ, let us know about it. But maybe you're like, I don't, I don't know, I, need, I just have questions. Seek us out, seek myself out, Pastor Chris out, somebody else, and let us help you to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Fill out the connection card, catch us after the worship service, email us, whatever it might be. We are here for you. And as we come and as we sing one last song here, may I remind you what John tells us in Revelation 21.3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. And the question is, can you claim that? I hope so. I pray so. And this is why in Revelation 21, 17, the Spirit and the Bride, the Bride being the church of Christ, say, come, come, Jesus, and let the one who hears say, come, let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. In other words, salvation is here for you in the person of Jesus Christ.